to the good news of the gospel and the great love that you have shown to us. We pray that you might really speak to our hearts by your spirit through your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been uh, doing a series together in this church through the book of 1 Corinthians, a letter that uh, a guy, the Apostle Paul, wrote to a church in Corinth, uh, which was virtually anything that you could misunderstand about the gospel, the Corinthians had misunderstood it. Any way that you could uh, not live up to the way that Christians are called to live, they were failing to live up to it. There are a lot of uh, divisions in this church, a lot of arguments, a lot of uh, pride in the people of the church, but also not a lot of faithfully following Jesus. And I mentioned in the very first week, it's almost somewhat incredible as we read all of the issues in this church, that he started, Paul started this letter by saying, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he calls them those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Over the last few weeks, we've seen that uh, the church had fragmented, had made factions, and people were arguing about which group was the right group and which group you had to belong to in order to be a proper Christian. And we saw that a man was sleeping with his father's wife, uh, his stepmother, and people thought that was fine and there was nothing wrong with that. And there were all sorts of problems. And so we pick it up in chapter 6 with another problem. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Earlier in the letter, he, he wrote, uh, blasted them about something and said, I'm not writing this to shame you. But now he's actually really wanting to put them on notice. I write this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another brother to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters? Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, 
No drunkards, no slanderers, no swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. So Paul, we've covered a little bit of ground there in chapter 6, dealing with the things that have been reported to him about what's going on in this church. And we've, you might be wondering, we sort of started off talking all this stuff about lawsuits and about Christians taking one another to court, uh, you know, and this in front of unbelievers. And then it sort of changed tack and we're now talking about sexual immorality and the issues of, that were happening with that in the church and about our, our bodies being a temple of the Holy Spirit and not you know, fleeing from sexual immorality. What is it that combines all of these things together? I'm going to put it in terms this morning. It's about our uniform. These two gentlemen here today... Uh, Anthony Prince and Luke Carroll. And they were dubbed in the news as the Dumb and Dumber Robbers. Now these two gentlemen, they were Australian gentlemen living over in the US and working at a sporting goods store. And they got a great idea, you know, in a sporting goods store over in America, you can get all sorts of guns and all sorts of what's and whatnot uh, just over the counter. And they got an idea that it'd be a, a wonderful idea to rob a bank. And you can see uh, what happened. They successfully robbed the bank. The only issue was, while they robbed the bank, they were still wearing the name tags uh, that they wore with the place that they worked on it and their names. <laughs> and people were able to f- figure out pretty quickly who they were. Wherever we go, being God's people, we are wearing a uniform. We have 
our name tags on. And people know who it is that we belong to and who it is that we follow. And what brings all of the things in this passage together is that idea that Paul really wants us to understand is that whatever we do in our life, we're doing it in our uniform. And we sort of see that in the way that he closes that whole section at the end of the chapter. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. You are in uniform. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Because what we do as God's people, and what we do in our uniforms, affects what people think of Jesus. It affects what people think of Christians and the church. When we choose to follow Jesus, generally at least some people around us will know that we are Christians, that we follow him. When Paul tells us in verses 9 to 11 of this chapter, do you not know wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. And he puts that very matter-of-factly. That is what some of us were. All of us were in opposition to God. All of us were not going to be inheriting the kingdom of God. None of us had any right to claim a part of that inheritance. Every one of us in this room was instead deserving of God's judgment. The Bible tells us very clearly that in the beginning God made the world and he made it good and that there was nothing wrong with it. It was all very good. And then from the very first people till all of us today, with only one exception, every person that has lived on this earth, instead of living in perfect relationship with the God who made us, trusting him, following his good directions for our lives so that we can enjoy the good things that, they, that those things lead to. Each of us have gone astray. Each of us have gone to our own way. Each of us have rejected God. And so each of us have no right to claim God's things. And you reject somebody, reject being part of their family, you cut yourself off from all of the things that they have. And the same is true of us. None of us deserve to inherit the kingdom of God. But the incredibly good news of the gospel tells us that in his love, God's love for us, in Jesus' love for us, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
all of the filth of sin, all of the stuff that has stuck to us throughout our lives, all of the things that we want to be rid of, has been washed away from us. You are sanctified. Instead of being God's enemies, we're called the saints. We are called holy. You were justified. The idea being that uh, justification is a very courtroom type word where you've been found not guilty. Although in this case, it's not that we're found not guilty. It's that we've been found guilty, but the penalty for that crime, the... uh, the fine that we owe has already been paid. In Jesus' love, we have been forgiven. We've been loved. We've been justified. We've been given eternal life. And in that eternal life, we've been given a a restoration of relationship with our Father who loved us. Now, of course, lots of this stuff comes later. This isn't the eternal life right now. Uh, I don't want eternal life with knees that are a bit swollen and ankles that are a bit sore. Now we have something much better than this world that is broken still with the problems of sin that is in it. We've been given a great deal. We've been forgiven a great deal. But that forgiveness comes at a price, a big price. But the good news of the gospel is that that price is not for you to pay because you don't have enough money. We aren't good enough to be able to pay the price our sins deserve. And Christ has paid that price in our place. We were bought at a price and the price was the blood of the eternal Son of God. Him becoming flesh, Him becoming human like us, knowing pain and knowing hunger and thirst and all of the brokenness of this world. Knowing separation from God as our sins were counted to Him on the cross and God's wrath was poured out on Him against our sins. And so Paul says, because we were bought by his blood, because Jesus has paid the price, now we don't own ourselves anymore. We were slaves, stuck in sin. And Jesus has come along and paid the price that we could never repay. But that doesn't mean, as the Corinthians thought, all right, now we can go do whatever we want. It means now we're owned by one who loves us and who gave his life for us. We're now his people. And so, now we're all in his uniform. And whatever we do reflects on Jesus. And that's very important that we understand that all of the ways that the Bible calls us to live, all of the good things it calls for us to do, is not for us to pay off our own price. 
which we can never do. It's not to be good enough so that God will say, okay, you get to go into heaven. It's only ever calls us to do good things in response to the fact that Jesus has already saved us. That Jesus has already set us free from the power of sin and death. That because of Jesus, we are saved. And now we get to do good things to show gratitude to him. So when we understand all this, when we understand the way that these, these good works that you might call them, these, uh, this Christian living application that Paul is giving us in this passage is our response to the gospel, our response to being saved. And when we understand that Paul is worried about us, how we wear our uniform that God has given us, It helps us to understand why Paul is so troubled by what is going on here in the church in Corinth. So troubled that he would say, I say this to shame you, to really get their attention. They're taking each other to court in front of unbelievers rather than sorting out their disputes in-house. There's the old saying that... The, the Bible verse, the song that goes with it, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Will they know that we're Christians by our love as we make uh, petty claims against one another in the courtrooms of this world? Their witness to the world is that Jesus' people are petty and self-interested, not loving and forgiving. And this is why Paul says to them, The problem with you going to these courts is you're doing all of this in your uniform and it's tarnishing what people think of Jesus. Wouldn't it be better if you just got ripped off instead than that you actually drag the name of Jesus through the mud? Now, Paul doesn't want people to be ripped off, he says, but it's better than the alternative. What Paul actually wants is that Christians don't cheat and rip each other off in the first place, as we read in verse 9. Oh, sorry, in verse 8. Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. And that's the context where he talks about, don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then, so he wants the brothers and sisters, the Christians in this church, not to rip each other off in the first place. But failing that, he says, you should be dealing with this in-house. Bring it to the leadership of the church. Bring it to, well, people that you trust, respectable people within the church, and let them arbitrate uh, in this issue. How do you feel about that? How would you feel if someone in the church came up to you and said, so-and-so in the church said that they'd uh, build me a fence for 5,000 bucks, but now they've done it and they've given me a bill for 8,000 bucks. I want you to come and arbitrate between us. What would you say to that? That would be a bit different. That would be a bit strange. But that's actually exactly what Paul is telling this church they're supposed to do for one another. 
Now to be very clear, Paul is talking about civil matters, not criminal matters. He's not talking about the church covering up a criminal offence and trying to deal with that within house. Criminal offences need to be dealt with in the right way by the state. And as I say, he's not talking about this so that the church can sweep disagreements under the carpet, but so that wrongdoing can be addressed and dealt with. I don't know how you'd feel about bringing wrongdoing like that to somebody in the church or to be the one who has to do that arbitration. But Paul reminds us, we, the people that follow Jesus, the people that have put their trust in him that are going to everlasting life, are not going to everlasting life to sit on a cloud and play harps all day. The picture that we have of the new heavens and the new earth is of the pe- God's people reigning over the new creation with responsibility, with duties, but without all of the problems of sin and all of the pain and all of the mourning and crying and all of the problems of this world. It's, you know those times when, when work is actually kind of satisfying? rather than just being frustrating. That's the picture of heaven, is that you have a purpose, but without all of those other little things that makes work difficult and aggravating. And he says, well, if we These are the people that are going to be ruling over the new creation. Surely we can trust them with the $2,000 discrepancy in your fence and deciding what's fair in that case. And I think as countercultural as this passage comes across, I really think it does apply. That it's something that we need to consider. That if a Christian wronged you, would your first thought to be to take them to court? I think Paul gives us a very clear warning about the message that that sends. About what it looks like when we do these things, wearing our uniform. I don't know that it necessarily says anything about if someone outside the church rips us off. Um, They probably won't agree to arbitration in the church, so the civil courts might be a a reasonable response there. And there are some things, uh, let's say, for example, like if somebody needed a restraining order, that's that's something that's um, dealt with in the civil courts, but that's probably something that you would want to get dealt with by the courts rather than the church. But the bigger issue, as we'll see in the next bit that Paul goes into, is what witness we're giving as we live our lives wearing the uniforms that Jesus has given, that we don't dishonour Jesus' name by brother fighting against brother and sister against sister in the eyes of the world. And following this point, Then Paul pivots to the other issue that he's been talking a bit about already in this letter. He's been talking a lot about sex and sexual immorality. But the overarching idea here is still the same. What we do reflects on Christ. Whatever we do, we're still doing it in our uniform. 
Now, this Corinthian church had the idea that everything was permissible. All things. I have the right to do anything. But he hits back with, not everything is beneficial. And as God's people, we are not to be mastered by anything. And they have another saying, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. And the idea being that just as it's, very, it's a morally neutral thing for us to have an appetite and then for us to eat to sate that appetite. So they said it's completely morally neutral to have a sexual appetite and go out and fulfil that sexual appetite with whoever somebody might want to do that with. And there's probably an underlying idea behind a lot of this in the church. Uh, in a lot of Greek thinking, and, and Corinth was a Greek city, there was this real disconnect between the body and the spirit. You know, your spirit was what God cared about, and so, you know, you go to church and you do those things and your spirit is good, and what you do with your body doesn't matter because, you know, bodies are just prisons that keep our spirit in them anyway, and they'll get dealt with in the end. And so Paul, in his response to them, says so much about our bodies. What we do with our bodies matters to God. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your bodies are members of Christ. And just as Christ was raised in his body from the dead, so the rest of us will be raised. Paul makes it very clear that what we do with our body does matter. Not least because whatever we do, again, we do in our uniform. Paul makes it very clear there's no such thing as casual sex, as consequence-free sex. Because sex was made as a powerful unity. And... uh, Husband and wife will be united together and they will become one flesh. And that's talking about a reality deeper than just what happens in the sexual act, but in the the way that God brings these people together in a very close unity. And he says, if you know somebody's going out and having sex with a temple prostitute, you're uniting Christ with a temple prostitute. And that is a problem. And lastly, as I said, because even in sex, our uniform is still on. And what we do reflects on what people will think of Jesus. Now today we don't probably tend to have the idea that they had about this split between the body and the spirit. And thus, what we do with our body doesn't matter. Maybe if we do tend to split anything, it's that we can tend to compartmentalise our church life and the rest of our life. And all that Paul has said in this chapter speaks to that too. All that we do is for God because everywhere that we go, we have our uniform on. And that can be difficult when you have your uniform on out on a football game on a Saturday afternoon and somebody you know, cleans you up unfairly off the ball 
And there are several things you might want to do about that. But you've got your uniform on. Or somebody cheats you. Somebody within the church doesn't follow through on a deal and you want to take them to court. But you've still got your uniforms on. You go to the shops and the shopkeeper is being very annoying and unhelpful and you might feel like saying a few choice words. But you still have your uniform on. Everywhere that we go, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be a temple? Well, one, it's a holy place, and that's, that's Paul's first point, is that you should treat your bodies like they're holy, and, and the context was about not going out and just sleeping with whoever. But the other thing is, the temple is where people come to meet God. And that's you now. You are where people come to meet God. That's, well, I find that a scary thought for myself. It's a, it is a confronting thought. That's what it means to have our uniform on. So we see that although there's a lot to take out of our passage this morning about you know, how to handle you know, being cheated and civil court cases and arbitration in the church instead and ideas about sexual immorality and uh, all of these ideas, this one thing, if we take nothing else away, is that whatever we do and wherever we go, we've got our uniform on. That we are his people. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. As we go out, let's wear our uniforms well. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the incredible thing it is that we, who were all sorts of things, had done all sorts of sins, had all fallen short of your glory, can now be called temples of the Holy Spirit because your Spirit lives in us. That we've been washed, we've been sanctified, we've been justified, and we have been given our uniform. Lord, there will be times where each of us will fall short and will do things wrong. And those things might reflect poorly on you. We ask for your forgiveness in that. And we trust you that we can always come to you for forgiveness when we fall short. But may we go out in our lives thinking about in everything that we do, bringing glory to you in the way that we behave, in all the things that we do, that we want to wear your uniform with pride so that it will bring you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Uh, him that we're going to sing.